I can't help but wonder if there's a ton of knowledge that's already baked into retailers' processes that is never making its way to the website. And I try to remind them that there is a lot of value in that and encourage them to connect the dots between the folks that are really masters of the product knowledge and the ones that are merchandising the website. Welcome to Wave Social Podcast, powered by Arcade Studios. My name's Mike, I'm here with my co-host Mitzi, and we've curated a show for digital marketers, advertisers, and modern entrepreneurs who wanna stop chasing the tide, start making waves online. Each episode, we'll sit down with the tastemakers and strategic minds behind some of the most engaged communities and up and coming brands. We'll pull back the curtain on their strategies and experiences to uncover the methodology behind their seismic impact. Thanks for joining us, let's dive in. Before we get started, we just wanted to tell you about We Edit Podcasts. They're great friends of ours, but ultimately a tremendous resource for launching our podcast. And uh, right out the gate for us, when we got this thing started, we wanted to make sure that our audio was top-notch. Totally. That's kind of a pet peeve of mine when I listen to podcasts that it's great content, but you can hardly hear it or it's choppy or uh, the interviewer sounds nice and crisp, but the the guest sounds like really muffled. So that's a problem we wanted to solve quickly, but we're not sound engineers. Mm-hmm. So we pulled in the We Edit podcast team to help us figure out the best platforms, the best equipment, and they provided all of that. It was incredible. Totally. We actually record our podcast episodes in a studio, in the We Edit podcast studio, which is awesome because that means we don't have to invest in our own podcasting equipment Absolutely. and we don't have to invest in learning how to use podcasting equipment, which is something that we don't have the time for. But Definitely not. working with We Edit podcast means that we can get that really great quality still without having to invest the time or resources to do it all ourselves. Yeah. And they handle all the other stuff too, like not just editing, but also show notes and uh, providing us all the specifics that we need. Need to, to launch the episodes, get them on our website and share them on social. And they make us sound so good. Dang, you sound nice. <laughs> you sound good. You got that milky voice. <laughs> That's nice. But for real, they actually cut out all the ums and ahs and all the extra spaces. So it makes the podcast just sound exactly what you want it to sound, which is nice, crisp and clear. Yeah. So if you're thinking about starting your own podcast, getting into anything that relates to audio, we encourage you to check out We Edit Podcasts. They make it super easy and uh, we got something special for you. Mitzi, tell them. Yeah. For all of our listeners, we are giving you 15% off the first month of your services with We Edit Podcasts. So you can take advantage of that incentive and go to wavesocialpodcast.com slash We Edit Podcasts. That's podcasts with an S at the end to take advantage of that offer. Yeah. We got a coupon code waiting there for you. And uh, we can't wait to hear your show. All right, season two, episode two, we're back at it again, feeling good in the studio today. And we're chatting with Ben Crudo. Yeah, Ben Crudo is the CEO of Diff Agency. They support e-commerce brands and any online retailers just make really great websites. Yeah, so he is right in the thick of retail in 2020. And actually, one of the things that we jump in pretty early in the discussion is the fact that he was born into retail. Mm -hmm. He wasn't necessarily a career path that he just chose out of a list but his parents were in it. They, mm-hmm. His dad was involved in denim mm-hmm. specifically. And it's cool to me to see that he kind of followed their path, you know, obviously yeah. in a more modern format. But it kind of got me thinking about our daughter, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm just curious, like, is she going to love what we do and want to follow in our footsteps? Or, <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> or is she going to want to carve out her own path and do something completely different? Yeah. It's funny. Every time we take her to the office, we're like, oh, this could be yours. Yeah. Welcome to your kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a small, tiny office with like hey, four people. <laughs> don't speak to it that way. <laughs> okay. But I mean, I don't know if she'll be into it. I was thinking during the interview what her retail experience is going to be like because mm. retail is changing so much. Yeah. Obviously, like there's online retail, but like in the future, I think retail is going to integrate things like VR and like... It is already. It is yeah, already. Yeah, that's there. true. Yeah. So what is her retail experience going to be? Is she going to like talk to her phone and then like automatically buy like five different versions of one thing and get the opportunity to try them on at home and then send yeah. them all back? Like, I feel like she's still going to want to go to the mall. You know, like really? you take her there fairly often. If and- malls exist by then. They must, like <laughs> even just for the sake of nostalgia, you mm. know, but or a place to just socialize with people. Yeah. 
But yeah, it's really interesting the way that retail is going and especially working with a lot of our clients that are in e-commerce and many of their customers shop on Instagram. You totally. Know? And Ben's kind of on the forefront of that. He's yeah. behind some of the the world's biggest e-commerce brands and like most innovative e-commerce brands. Mm-hmm. So it's really cool to get his perspective. One thing that I thought was really interesting is how he's kind of a champion of accessible websites, which isn't something I really thought about. But, you know, when you think about a brick and mortar store, for example, you want to make sure that it's accessible to people with disabilities. Yeah, there's bylaws around that. Absolutely. And it's important. And now, like, as we're going into like the digital world, there are laws coming out to make sure that websites and e-commerce experiences are accessible to everyone Mm -hmm. and especially people with disabilities. And he's kind of on the forefront of that conversation. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. It's something we don't think about a lot, but we're good. We just have to, you know, and Ben gets into that more on the show. So we don't have to spill all the beans, but you'll, you'll get some tips on how to make your website accessible. And it's not actually that difficult. And we call out a privilege on it because it is something that we've been ignorant on it because we don't have to worry about that. But anyways, he gets into the deep and I think it's great. Yeah. And Ben knows what he's talking about. He's got it like diff is a hundred people. I didn't even realize that until we really got into the weeds, but that is a big company and that takes brains and a lot of wisdom to be able to, to manage a team like that and get results from it. Yeah. And I love how he talked about how important it is to set aside or really spell out what your values are as you grow and scale your team. Because when I heard 100 employees, I was like, that sounds so scary. <laughs> and just chaotic. And yeah, totally. But yeah. because they've been really intentional about spelling out their values, they are able to identify people who are a good culture fit right at the gate. Because we all know if you hire someone, it's actually super expensive and more costly to replace someone. So anyways. It's like a culture play. You know, it's not just about getting the job done, but every person that you add to the team has an impact on all your employees experience working at that business and whether they want to stay or go, you know? So that was one of his pro tips on how to just scale your agency is to figure out your values early. But he had, he had a wealth of information around that topic. Yeah. And then the other thing he that I thought was really interesting was how he gave up his smartphone to have like a really, he calls it a dumb phone, but to have like one of those old school brick like flip phones. Yeah. And he did it because he felt like he was getting addicted to his technology or his technology was controlling him rather than the other way around. So we kind of talked to him about that experience. Yeah, when he was talking about it, all I could think about was back in high school, texting all my friends during class with T9. And man, I was a pro at T9. I I don't know know about you, but I I could even text (laughs) him without looking under my desk. You know, I just had it dialed. I didn't know you then, but I can picture it vividly. Yeah, I would have been blowing you up during like, I don't know philosophy or whatever. I have no patience for texting. I'm actually a really bad texter because it takes so long to like, even on my iPhone, it takes, yeah. I feel like well, it you're takes just always long. juggling like 80 things at once. So. Yeah. If I pull out my phone, I'm like, okay, here we go. Like which notification am I going to get to first? Yeah. Every time we're going to pick up our daughter from my mom's or whatever at the end of the workday, Mitzi's always like, man, I haven't even been on Instagram today. I don't even <laughs> my know what's personal happening. Instagram. Yeah. yeah. You, you spend your life on Instagram for our clients, but Yeah, he brought up some good points around technology, like boundaries, I think, and kind of got us starting to talk about that a little bit, even just with like family and friends and like, you know, are we really present with the people that we care about when we need to be present with them? And obviously there's time to work and then there's time to Mm -hmm. not. So just it's important, I think, to have those conversations and to really like have some self-awareness around that too. And Yeah, it was thought provoking, mm -hmm. I think. And in the direction of some thoughts we've already been having for our own life, because we're very busy as business owners and parents. And and one thing we've been trying to do, as technology aside, but just we call it taking back our Saturdays mm-hmm. and not just allowing ourselves to fall into needing to do more work on mm-hmm. the weekend, but actually spend some time as a family and unplug a little bit. And yeah. Put your phone enjoy. aside yeah. and just be Don't with the a people. plant or something, you know. <laughs> you love buying plants on a Saturday. <laughs> yeah. Anything to avoid cleaning the house. <laughs> Anyways, getting into a little bit of marriage counseling here. But I've got a review that I wanted to read before yeah, we get into the rest of it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. One thing that we're doing differently in season two is we're starting to read some reviews from you guys, our yeah. amazing listeners. So the one we pulled today is from Jaden Rutt on Apple Podcasts. And it was a five star. I just got to throw that out there. But he said, really loving this podcast. The guests are well chosen. 
content is on trend and the conversation is insightful and relatable. I really enjoy the conversation flow and how Mitzi and Mike have worked to draw in talent and wisdom from their network. Can't wait to hear and learn more. Wow. Thank you, Jaden. Well, That's you're about so nice. to hear and learn more today. <laughs> but if you guys want to leave us reviews, it helps a lot. It goes a long way. So whether it's Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening, or even if you have recommendations for future guests or episodes, send us a DM on Instagram at Wave Social or head to wavesocialpodcast.com and fill out a contact form. <laughs> that sounds like old school kind of. Fill out a contact form. Do people do that? I don't know. What's a more modern way on a website? Just DM us on Instagram or Twitter yeah. at Wave Social. Or send Mitzi a text at... Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. All right. Let's get into it. <laughs> well, that's enough of that. <laughs> Here we go. So right. this is episode two with Ben Crudo of Div Agency. Before we get into today's discussion, I want to tell you about ClearBank. ClearBank is a financing partner that provides financing for Facebook ads, Google ads, Pinterest ads, or Amazon ads. It's an awesome partner for e-commerce brands who want to invest in ads in order to get more sales. Yeah, we know how difficult it can be for small to medium-sized businesses, even if you're already spending a little bit and you're seeing some positive return on investment, but you need to scale. Uh, you know that it probably will scale, but you just don't have the, the cash available. This is the solution for that. All you have to do is plug it in, give them access to the back end of your e-commerce store, and they have an algorithm that processes and determines uh, what kind of cash can be available to you and you can have access to it within hours. Totally. I love that because it means that you don't have to max out a credit card. You don't have to apply for financing. You don't have to give up equity through investments. And it, I love that too, because it takes away the gender bias that might yeah. exist when you're asking for more funds. For sure. And that's really important for you know women-led businesses or anyone else who's asking people to invest in your brand. So it's an awesome resource and you don't have to give up any equity and it's it's great. Yeah, it's huge from a business perspective as well. There's other options out there to get a hold of uh, financing, but often you have to give away part of your business or you have to pay an intense interest rate that's fixed. But with, uh, with ClearBank, it's not fixed and it has everything to do with just a percentage of the revenue you generate from those ads. So it's, it's safe, it's secure, you're not going to lose your house over it, mm -hmm. but you have an op opportunity to make a lot of money and grow your brand. Yeah. So if you're interested in learning more or just exploring to see if you'd be a good fit, uh, we'd love for you to check out wavesocialpodcast.com slash ClearBank. That's clear, C-L-E-A-R, bank with a C at the end, B-A-N-C. Uh, we actually are an agency partner, so we'll have a little incentive there for you if you want to explore more. Yeah, lower interest rates. Can't complain about that. Totally. So Ben, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. We're so excited for our interview. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Awesome. It's going to be a fun one. Yeah. So I wanted to start at the beginning. We're going to get into the e-commerce side of things shortly, but I want to start from where your retail relationship began. And I hear it's started at an early age. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, right on. I was born into the retail business, so to speak. So not even a choice, I suppose, that I landed up here the way I am. My dad actually started a retail organization in Canada, Eastern Canada, Montreal here called Jeans Experts. And he expanded that to be national brand at some points, but primarily focused in the Eastern provinces. And so I really grew up working in warehouses in the summer and kind of constantly being exposed to the retail biz through, you know, regular nightly conversations at the dinner table and watching my father and my mom, you know, sort of growing and participating in that business. That's awesome. So did your parents, were they kind of the ones that started in retail or was this something that was passed down to them as well? Yeah, that's interesting. I think it did sort of get passed down a little bit too, at least on my dad's side. My grandmother, my dad's mom, had a store where she sold dresses in Montreal called Coquette. And she, I guess, uh, yeah, gave the bug to my dad and ended up helping him secure his first loan to open up his first store. So yeah, it seems to be running through the family a bit. That's awesome. So a long list of entrepreneurs and retail, like people who own retail stores as well. Like, because you're an entrepreneur as well. Yes, I turned out to be one. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit, how did that experience in brick and mortar and seeing your parents run a retail store, how did it impact your approach to digital retail? Because now you work kind of or specialize in the e-commerce world. Like, how do you think that influenced that? 
Yeah. So I, you know, growing up, I always thought that I was going to be a retailer. I thought I was going to take over my dad's business and selling jeans and t-shirts was probably how I'd make my living. And through my work at his company, I noticed that the computer systems seemed to be extremely important. And I had a lot of ideas about how they could function, but I was never really certain. And like every point of sale system or computer system in general, I was always butting my head against its shortcomings. And I felt as though I was working harder than my computers were, and that didn't make any sense to me. So I became very curious about how I could improve them and how I could extract the results that I needed to do my job more effectively. And through that curiosity, I hired a programmer to work with me and create a whole bunch of reports to give me more advanced analytics to guide my decision making. And one day, the guy who I hired turned around to me and said, I think we have something here that I can sell to other people, too, with your same POS system. And I was like, all right, I don't know. Go see what you can do. And he turned around two weeks later and came back and said he sold it. And I was blown away. And it was like the first time I ever thought you can actually make money doing something with software. And it led me to quit my retail career and go back to school to get an engineering degree. And that's because I didn't really like having to ask somebody all the time if my wacky ideas were feasible on a computer and in a program. And so I decided to go get a first-hand education myself so that I could bring that knowledge a little bit closer to home. Awesome. And so you went to school for engineering, and then how did that turn into Diff? Like, give us the origin stories of how you built your agency. Yeah. So when I went back to school, I didn't know, of course, that I would come out the other end, an agency guy working in e-commerce. At that point, I was really just trying to find myself all over again and immersing myself in this world of computing and software engineering. And I felt like I could have gone many different ways. But while I was in school, I kept a job the whole time because I was a little bit older when I had gone back. So, of course, I had to pay for the apartment and bills. And I was working at a point of sale company, actually, as a business analyst, and I was really effective there because I understood the domain so well. And of course, with my growing knowledge of computers, uh, it started to make sense. But I didn't quite put together that I was going to be good at applying my computing knowledge to the world of retail. It really came together for me when in my last year, I needed to find a new job because I had a disagreement with management which ended up with me receiving a pink slip on my desk, which I didn't even know was possible, that you can actually get fired by having a pink piece of paper on your desk. But, but that's how I got the boot. And all of a sudden, I found myself needing to sort of find some work. And after uh, speaking to a friend of mine who told me he engaged a web developer to build him an e-commerce site and paid him a lump sum of money. And then three months later, the guy disappeared. And when I heard how much money he paid him, I was like, oh, my God, like, I'll work for you for the whole year to make you a website. Like, I'm not going to run anywhere. Please, please give me the opportunity. So he gave me the chance to do it. And I was, of course, still a little bit unsure about my skills as a professional. So I enlisted some help from the best engineering students that I could find sitting next to me. And we put up a Shopify store for a customer and we integrated it to their ERP system. Did so in the confines of a few months and everything worked really well, actually. And the client had a great experience and I had a great experience. And I realized that, like, I'm good at this. I wanted to do more of it. It's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I feel like some of the best stories come out of someone or like a client getting ripped off by somebody else and then someone like you coming in and saving the day. So that's yeah. pretty cool. So obviously your core services when you started to figure out that you were going to start an agency were revolving around e-commerce, but what were they specifically? Can you clarify like what your initial offering was? Yeah. So, you know, when I started, the only resource that I had was myself. And the only skills that I had were consulting with customers, understanding their intentions, and helping line up an e-com site, and then integrating it to their surrounding systems. So I wasn't able to do any of the design work, because unfortunately, I'm only a critic of design. I'm not a creator. 
But in terms of actually turning those designs into useful bits of code, that I was able to do. And also, of course, having knowledge of all of the surrounding computer systems that retailers use made me really confident in my ability to string them all together in a useful way for our customers. So it was really just system integrations and front-end development at the very beginning. Gotcha. And so how long was that the core before your services started to evolve? And then how did they evolve? Yeah, it was definitely the evolution of services came through exposure, through working with more customers and partnering with other companies on their projects. I didn't come from agencies, so I didn't have any of those preconceived conceptions and certainly knew very little about what it means to be well-rounded. So I just kind of got momentum by being a good service provider, focusing on solving a narrow series of problems efficiently. But as I started working with more and more customers, you know, that obviously design is a very big part of website development. And I was constantly interfacing with designers of different level of skill and learning about their practice along the way. And the first time, it took about two and a half, three years for me to land a client that I was able to tell pretty much anybody about and they would recognize. And that was the World Wildlife Fund of Canada. And I got subcontracted by a much bigger agency to do the technical work, but they were leading the design portion. And when I was able to be a witness to their design process in motion, relative to all of the designers and projects that I had worked on before, I really, really liked what I saw. It was much more professional. It was congruent with a lot of engineering processes whereby we have to be able to measure things and there needs to be a clear process associated with it. And we have a series of conclusions that we make in a logical way. And that was very different from a lot of the creative-led design projects that I had been on where we were more so debating personal preferences and colorways. So I only really became attracted to even wanting to offer design after I saw how it could be done in more of a user experience centric kind of way. And the fellow who was working the account, Matt Humphreys, on the other side of the line at T4G, ended up moonlighting for me and ultimately becoming the chief experience officer here at DIFF. So through a lot of trial and tribulation with working with other folks, getting exposure, getting my education up on what it is these people do, and eventually finding the right person to work with me allowed me to add that service to the agency. And then a similar story happened when we started our growth department, which focuses on conversion rate optimization, which is really, really important for e-commerce sites, of course. And the whole analytics bit, I was working with a client that was a little bit more finicky in terms of their way that they chose professionals to work with. And this guy stood the test and was doing great work for them. And I, of course, got to be on the line with him at some moment. And I messaged him on the side after our meeting was over. I'm like, any chance you want to do some work with me too? And he's like, sure. And that's how another great relationship started and another department started here. So today we have design, development services, user experience, of course, is bundled into design and growth services, which focus on on-site optimization, like conversion rate optimization, but also with search engine optimization as well, so that we can make sure our customers get noticed by the search engines. Man, I feel like there's so much that we can I know. Pick there's out so from... many different tangents I want to go on. I know. One thing that really stuck out to me, though, Ben, was just that you talked about how you weren't from an agency background, and so you didn't have these like preconceived ideas of how things should work. Have you found that to still kind of compound in its positive impact, just the fact that you didn't come from an agency in the way that you approach client work today? Or do you feel like you've now kind of aligned more with how typically agencies work? Yeah, it's loaded. And I think I uh, struggle with that all the time, wondering, you know, what way is better, what would have been less painful. I really appreciate actually not being constrained and having more of an ability to ask, you know, what may be seemingly dumb or inappropriate questions inside an organization that has a lot of structure. And that's because I think that the structure of a company needs to be reevaluated as it grows. And that's been one of the biggest lessons for me is going from being like a single 
man, like a one-man band, to now the CEO of a company that has over a hundred people at it, and you know, reflecting on how my role has changed. But I definitely find myself, you know, now looking for more folks with experience for books that can help increase my level of understanding on more traditional ways of doing business, if for nothing else than to reassure myself that the set of concerns that these people have, you know, that I've at least thought about them. Totally. Yeah. So you mentioned that you have over 100 employees now, which is amazing, especially in agency worlds where most agencies are laying people off left, right and center. Did you ever envision that you'd have an agency of that size? No, I haven't. (laughs) This is all a dream for me. I didn't intend to start this. I just kind of got pulled into it by my own ambition and by my own ability to see opportunities and a willingness to respond to them. So I feel like I'm somewhat of an accidental entrepreneur. It's definitely some character traits that probably pushed me in this direction. But I didn't go back to school saying to myself, I'm going to go back, start a company and hire all my friends. I did actually have that thought one day when I was doing my prerequisites, but I was like, that is just, that reality is so far from where I'm at now. It's a silly thought to even have. And so I never really went back to it, but I chuckle back now when I think about that moment and I'm like, there was a little bit more foresight in that than I even understood. That's funny. So uh, we do have quite a few like agency people listening. Can you give any advice on hiring or building out teams? Because, you know, obviously there's so many challenges when you're working with teams of that size. Anything that you've learned that you want to pass along to anyone else who might be in a similar position or wants to be, you know, in an agency or grow or build an agency of that size? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. But, you know, one thing I've realized now more and more is that this is really a people-based business. I think of like these particular outcomes that we provide to our customers as maybe a specific occurrence, but the larger issue here is organizing people effectively internally and also knowing how to interface with external companies in an effective way. So in the beginning of my career and in the beginning of the agency days, Being able to just do the job well, putting out high quality work was what consumed me more and what scared me more. I feel like once you start to develop the expertise that's necessary, though, to provide the services, you shift your focus to what the bigger picture is. And the bigger picture is that I need to create a workforce here that's extremely happy and that is able to day in, day out, solve hard problems for my customers. And I also need to make sure, of course, that customers are building up their trust and their faith in us and that we are filling the gaps that they need filled. And you'll start out by being narrowly focused on the technical bits. But as you graduate, your understanding of yourself, of your company, of your capabilities, and of your customers I think you start to get better at teasing out where the true opportunities are for you to be an effective partner for them. Very cool. I've also read that you work with a values coach and you encourage your team to do the same. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? I personally have never worked with a values coach. I've been interested in that. But what kind of benefits have you seen for yourself? Oh, I really enjoy that part actually of of my education lately and bringing that to the organization. It's been, I think, transformative, frankly, for me to think of using values inside a company structure as a means of communicating direction to your team. And so it's not enough for me to have you come in and do your job and achieve the technical results. That for me is like the baseline of what needs to happen. But I also want you to be doing your job in such a way that you are endearing yourself to others, others to you, and especially customers and coworkers. And so there haven't been many people that I've had to fire at this company, thankfully. But when I think back of the ones that I have, it's primarily because of a clash of values. So what values do from a company perspective, you know, you have your vision, you have your mission, 
you got a strategy, and all of those things are telling us what we do, but our values tell us how we expect you to do it. And I think that goes a, a very long way in creating a culture that's intentional at the company. That's really interesting. Can you give us a little bit of insight into when you started to introduce this like values-based approach to your agency? Like, Was it part of the fabric right from the beginning or was it more like midway in the growth process? And if so, was it met with any resistance or was it like a welcome addition to, yeah, to the culture? Yeah, because I imagine that some of the OGs might like, I don't know, maybe you can speak to this obviously, but like maybe that could have come with some confrontation. Yeah. So, you know, when the company was smaller and we were just a bunch of bros in a loft kind of getting things done, we were all much more connected to one another. So we didn't need to formalize what it means to have a culture of values because we were just living it. And it obviously was heavily influenced by me and my tone. And so I think I I don't want to say like I took it for granted before, but it wasn't something that required as much explicit description. But as the company has grown, the number of people that we have has grown, teams have started to form and sort of operate in their own ways. That's when I think it started to become more apparent that like, you know, I wasn't able to personally influence everybody's behavior as much by being a role model and setting an example and having them see, you know, how I operate and setting the tone. So when we worked with the values coach, he helped point out the fact that this can be a sort of way to construct a code of conduct and that does become an effective tool to orient the behavior of the team. So it was actually met with open arms by everybody at the company. I haven't heard any negative feedback, frankly, about the process. If anything now, the only time that there is negative feedback is when somebody isn't living the values or the values have been offended in some way systematically and that needs to be corrected. So Nice. Yeah, that's really intriguing. And I feel like for a lot of agencies, even our size, mm-hmm. that's something that isn't really we're more at that phase where we have a touch point with everybody so we can kind of govern the culture, but, or just like positively impact it. But for an agency like ours or at a similar level to ours, where maybe we're growing in the direction of needing to implement some sort of value system like this, where would you suggest we start? You know, like how do we get into that? Yeah. And so, you know, I think even at a smaller size, by the way, it's still a really good idea to get a consensus on them and put them up on the wall and use them as a way that we reinforce positive behavior. So if you have stated values, you're sitting in a meeting with somebody, let's say one of your values is respect and somebody acts in a, you know, disrespectfully toward you, you can then ask them how their behavior is congruent with the company's value system. And so it can be a really useful tool to depersonalize a potential conflict and allow you to just, you know, defer the wielding of the stick to a company and organizational attitude as opposed to an interpersonal issue. So I think for that reason, it's always effective. And how do you start? Well, we got help. We got a coach to come in and, you know, go through the process, but we brought everybody together or as many people as we reasonably could to come up with ideas about what our values could be. And we went into some lengthy debates in them, reflected on it. And as a team, we then sort of circulated what the favorite responses were to pretty much everybody and got a consensus. And once we had that, then we knew that these were going to be things that everybody was willing to adhere to because they participated in the process. So it's also really important to do that to make sure that these things don't become virtues that are passed down to people, which they have to live up to. But by including them in the process, they feel that they have a stronger connection to them and more ownership of them. Yeah, I think that's so insightful. I love the idea of like the team being involved in, Mm -hmm. in creating those rather than just giving yeah. it to them. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a key point because when you first talked about it, I'm like, how would my team respond to that? But 
I think, yeah, getting their buy-in and letting them be involved in the process, I think is great. That's awesome. Cool. Well, switching gears a little bit here, I want to go back to the websites. I mean, most of our listeners, our podcast is about making waves online. So all of our listeners have some sort of home or website where they're building either traffic towards or they're trying to get attention around. So one thing I do want to ask you about is you're pretty passionate about building accessible websites and especially for people with disabilities. So can you share a bit, a little bit more about that? That is actually a new concept for me. I didn't know about that and didn't think about that until I read your article about that. And I, I guess I have to check my privilege around that too. But yeah, I just want to know from your end, like what, how did you build that passion and what does an accessible website even look like? Yeah. So there's a set of standards, which are mostly design related that just help make sure that when you present something on screen, to an audience that, you know, as many of them as possible are able to appreciate it. So it's not particularly hard, actually, to make a website accessible. It does require some consideration, though, in the design process and also a little bit in the development process. Something simple that you might consider that bleeds into the development side is having alt tags on your images so that somebody who's visually impaired can have the screen reader describe the photo that's on screen through the alt tag instead of uh, them seeing it. Otherwise, you know, like a more of a design type of example would be having appropriate levels of contrast, perhaps, between text and a background so that that pops off a little bit more easily and they can see. So it's come about, I think, you know, obviously the beauty of the internet is that there is this sort of concept baked into it of universal access to it. And it is this wonderful tool that hopefully as many people as possible can get to touch and play with. And, you know, certainly not marginalizing or not considering any part of the population ought to be our goals as people who produce things that can technically be universally accessed. Uh, but if that's not motivation enough for you, the governments have stepped in and started to demand that things be made accessible as well. And so increasingly over the last few years in the United States, especially, a lot of lawsuits have popped up around companies that haven't made the right steps to make their sites accessible. And that's having some very real implications on their bottom line in cases where they have to pay fines and double down on fixing their work. So I'm really glad to see that, you know, the governments have stepped in to force companies to make their stuff accessible. And, you know, there is an extra good virtue in there, of course, in providing that service. That's super interesting. I feel like anyone that knows about the benefit of accessibility or even the fact that their design choices can affect it would want to. I'm assuming they would. For anyone who's listening that they're like, yes, absolutely. I want to consider this in the way I'm building websites or doing like front end design or anything like that. Where can they find those standards? Is it as simple as just Googling it? Or is there like a resource that you fall back on regularly? Yeah, so it depends where you are. There's different set of standards that you can follow. In Canada, we have AODA, which is mandated by the Ontario government. Otherwise, there's ADA compliance in the U.S., you know, a simple Google search, frankly, will bring up a ton of sites that have these things. And the government's actually produced a site as well that share those standards. So I think it's like ADA.gov even is a good place to start for the U.S. standards. And I think there's a similar URL for the AODA in Ontario. Yeah, I think it's AODA.ca. Nice. Perfect. Okay. And I'm curious if it makes a difference in actual SEO. Like, does it impact website traffic or engagement when you're actually checking off all the boxes on these standards? Or is it more so just a like doing in good conscience kind of thing? Yeah, so that's a tricky one to answer because search engines don't disclose exactly what criteria they use to rate sites and rank them against keywords. You can get some advice, of course, from them. But the general theme that I've observed over the last you know, decade, watching Google a little bit more closely, 
is that they tend to reward sites with best practices baked into them. And this is definitely considered a best practice. And I would not be surprised at all if, you know, today or tomorrow, Google did start giving a preference to websites that do present with ADA compliance. So even if they don't officially state it, I have no doubt that there will be a reward for you to go out of your way and take this extra little step to become compliant. Cool. Wow, that's good to know. And then for people, this is more a little granular, but for people that are like trying to add alt tags, for example, to their images on their website, how descriptive does an alt tag necessarily need to be? Well, that's up to you. I mean, I would say, look at a picture, close your eyes and describe it. If the description is too short and you're not building up the right picture in your mind, then you probably haven't written enough about it to share that with the user. So I think, you know, some pictures that we put online are more useful than others. And you have to think about what the relative importance is of that image to the overall site experience you're trying to deliver. That's a solid answer. Yeah, like that's it. great. Pretty straightforward, <laughs> but don't know until you know. Uh, so you work with a lot of direct-to-consumer retail brands that lead with their story. And we saw you actually said in a recent article in Forbes that it's no longer good enough for retailers, whether online or off, to put their products on display and just hope for the best. Can you expand on that a little bit for us? Unpack that thought? Yeah, I'm pretty... Uh, you're hitting a nerve there. <laughs> Let it go. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, this to me stems, you know, back to the question of like, what does it mean to be a retailer and how am I providing value in this chain? We know that services like, you know, Amazon are the new flavors of Walmart, if you will, that are now omnipresent, available online. They're really hitting the convenience game hard. They're bringing prices down on everything, making it quick and easy to buy. So, you know, that's one aspect of what it means to be a retailer. And, you know, trying to compete head on with Amazon is probably as easy as it was to compete against Walmart in the 80s. So, you know, for 99.9% .9 of other retailers out there, how do you distinguish yourself? How do you win that business? And, you know, my dad had a saying when he started his retail career back in 76, you know, build and they will come was the motto. And so I think that spoke to the importance of just being in a local market. And by virtue of being there, you are going to win some business. That is, you know, not the way that the retail business trended. Unfortunately, competition increased and you had to find ways to get better. And I think that the same is true online. You know, now there's a billion websites. Shopify has made it, you know, and some of its competitors have made it easier than ever to get a web store stood up. So like, why should I buy from you at this point, especially considering that, you know, the next store over, I don't even have to walk to, I just have to hit a few buttons on my keyboard, click my mouse, and I'm there. So I feel that retailers these days need to think a little bit harder about what it is that they're bringing to the market and the customer experience and have a little extra strategy baked into their offering apart from just having available inventory. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in what ways can they do better? Like what do you think that re online retailers, especially direct to consumers, like obviously this is an attention game, like what's the best or in what, in your opinion, should they be doing to get attention so they can like stick in people's minds when they're like shopping for something? Yeah, so I think there's a different approach that needs to be taken depending on which customer segment you're after and what types of products that you're selling. One thing, though, that like if you're more of like a, a retailer that's perhaps a generalist, you know, you normally have a buying team. There's a whole universe of products out there that exist that probably fill a certain need that are replaceable. And you've taken the time to curate that selection of products available globally and distill it into an offering of, I don't know, maybe five different types of kettles that you're going to sell. So what most people will do in the laziest case is get a website, put five kettles online at different prices, and that's that. 
and not realizing that there's so much work that went in to deciding that these are actually the five kettles that make the most sense because we've studied the different price point categories versus the features that are out there. And we feel that at this end of the spectrum, each one of these products is really best in class and able to provide the most value to our customers. So I can't help but wonder if there's a ton of knowledge that's already baked into retailers' processes that is never making its way to the website. And I try to remind them that there is a lot of value in that and encourage them to connect the dots between the folks that are really masters of the product knowledge and the ones that are merchandising the website. And I think that's a fairly universally applicable bit of advice that any retailer could probably relate to to some extent. Wow. Yeah, I think that's great. Do you have a a couple examples just offhand of brands that you feel are, are doing this really well currently? So I was really impressed actually by Arcteryx. They're a uh, brand that sells sportswear, outerwear. I needed to get a new coat to go skiing with this year because the last time I bought one was in 1998. And I went in store to go check out the selection. They had seven different ski jackets. And when I asked the guys in store what the difference is between them, they couldn't really articulate it to me all that much. This one's 50 bucks more. That one's 50 bucks less. This one stretches a bit. This one doesn't. Didn't really feel like I was getting answers that helped me understand why that company deliberately made seven different unique jackets that are all technically interchangeable for the same purpose. But when I went to their website, it divided them up and explained the differences between them and their intended uses really, really clearly, actually. And they had great photography associated with each to help you sort of picture those benefits and values. And I was just blown away. I was like, this is done right. And, you know, it was an example of how a website actually provided better service to me than the sales guy. And that really pains me because I think that the salespeople in a physical retail store are the least leveraged but potentially greatest point of value that a retail store has to present to their customers and to help them create that relationship and guide them through the buying process. And, you know, great for the website that it was able to do that. And, you know, my hope, frankly, is that salespeople are always as knowledgeable as possible to provide, you know, that experience and more, hopefully. Yeah, that, that's a perfect segue into our next question here, I think, because... I just want to talk about how digital tools have obviously transformed retail and brick and mortar. And part of that is that department stores have struggled. You know, we see the demise of stores like Sears and Forever 21. But we want to know a little bit more around this, maybe like survival tips for listeners who work for brick and mortar and even department stores. So obviously, the first one is that the sales staff need to be educated on the product so that they can not just sell it, but articulate the differences. But what other tips would you have for people who are selling in brick and mortar contexts compared to online? Yeah. So, you know, people like when you open up a retail store, it's pretty simple. You get some square footage. It's a structure. You then merchandise it and you fill it up with people. These are the assets. This is what a store is. So, you know, making the walls fancier or less fancy, you know, great. You can create some ambiance. Ambiance is always great. Wonderful. That's a money problem. You know, the rest is the product selection that you have. I mean, that normally is a bigger lift. So, you know, obviously you have to think deeply about your curation and, you know, they do. And that's where you're going to tie up a lot of your money. All your money, in fact, in a retail business is tied up in inventory or most of it is. So that's a big investment. The last bit is the people. And unfortunately, in the retail biz, people often get the short end of the stick, especially down at store level. And so I think that we need to change the position and the stance that we have vis-a-vis our retail staff 
and place a little bit more importance on that job and probably pay those people a little bit more than what the average salary is in the marketplace so that we incentivize them to stay because they can provide a sense of continuity to customers that may frequent your store. They'll build up relationships with them. They'll become more intimately knowledgeable about the product line and are ultimately, they're doing the selling in a lot of cases, or can aid the selling process. So if you're devaluing your people and you're thinking about your retail staff as being unreliable folks who don't care about the business, ask yourself if you've set up the conditions that are necessary to have these people care about the business and how can you empower them to be the best they can be and give the best performance possible to the business. And you'll see how your units per transaction goes up, how the number of walkouts who don't buy anything decreases, how you'll be able to capture more email addresses and develop a stronger personal relationship with your target audience. Love that. I want to talk about you know some brick and mortar businesses like on the smaller scale, so smaller brick and mortars that maybe just have like a few locations. Do you find that their web presence or e-commerce like I find that some smaller brick and mortars they'll invest in an online e-commerce solution, which is, you know, great because it extends their borders of their store a little bit. But I find that it's usually, you know, an afterthought to their main business or it takes a lot of effort to build enough traffic and all that. So it's really hard for smaller business owners who have a brick and mortar store to have the attention and have two, you know, their online business and their reach in store real life business thrive. Can you like speak to that? Like, is it possible for smaller businesses to have both do really well? And I know you said like for brick and mortar to spend more time and emphasis on people. And if they're trying, you know, doing that, but also trying to build their e-commerce side, like any tips that you can offer for that? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think that this problem is not only faced by smaller retailers, but also when we think of people who are distributors and are generally going through B2B channels to move their product, but want to start developing a closer relationship to their customer and opening up B2C channels. And of course, what's the first thing everybody does? They're like, get me a website. So, you know, there is this. I can't help but feel like there's this bias baked into the concept of starting a website that it's easier than starting up a retail store. And that's, I think, the first mistake that everybody makes is underestimating the effort that's required to truly make a fantastic website and web experience and keep people engaged and coming back. And so if you're a retailer and you have four stores and you have plans to expand and you want to make a fifth store and you're thinking maybe that should be my online store, I would say start by considering the budget for that store to be larger than what you probably had in mind. If you were just looking at the fees that platforms charge you like Shopify as $29.99 a month and thinking that's, you know, my base of expenses for my rent for the month, you're already off to the wrong start. Also, running a website, you know, requires specialized knowledge to some extent. And, you know, you need different activities to be undertaken by your company in order to make that site great, like photography, like analytics, writing, even content needs to be done really, really well. So you probably don't have most of the people inside of your organization that you need in order to be a really effective online seller. And so you have to think seriously about the changes that are necessary to your org and your structure to be able to go at the web business with some vigor. Awesome. That's good advice. I've I've seen a lot of people start online stores and then realize partway through how much they're missing and then have it perform like not at all. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of sits there. Or maybe they just hesitate to invest in like 
really good things like content or copy or whatever and just scrap with what they have and who they have and then wonder why they're not their online business isn't doing as well as like their retail business yeah or they haven't made a sale yet yeah yeah and the reality is also you need some specialized knowledge to run a retail business online, which is different than the knowledge you have to run your retail business in the physical world. So, you know, the best thing that any entrepreneur, the best lesson you can learn is the uh, limits of your own knowledge. And for whatever reason, because of the allure, the ease of the technology these days, you know, all the advertising telling you it's really easy to become your own boss and sell anything you want online, sort of stoking the flames there and not truly representative of the reality of the effort that's required to uh, really move the needle and have this be a significant part of your business. Totally. That's some gold. One thing that I've been really excited to ask you about, Ben, is even just boundaries around technology. You have a background in engineering and a lot of your team likewise are engineers. And for us, we run a digital agency. So we just spend so much time around tech. But I know you've set some boundaries with tech in the past. And uh, I'm curious what led you to do that. But even more so, like, how have you been successful in it? And what, what are some of the benefits that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, coming up, it's been interesting. You know, I was born in 83. So I feel like the first 10 years of my life, tech really wasn't there all that much. It wasn't that important. Certainly, you know, when my dad came home in like 1992 or something with his first cell phone and it was the size of a brick, you know, we were really far away from where we've come today. So as technology started to become more accessible and I was kind of coming of age, I was always really excited about it and wanted to believe all the promises that were associated with these new tech things. And I've just been like habitually absorbing new technologies into my life. And uh, there's an update for an app. I'm on it right away. A new, you know, phone comes out. I got to have it right away. And I feel like now, as I've gotten a little bit older, looking back at the promises that have been made to me, I feel like my phone hasn't really become much more useful to me than when I got my first BlackBerry in like 2004, which is, you know, now 15 years. So, but one thing that I have noticed is that ever since I did have my BlackBerry in my life, I have now been connected to like the world in a different way and in a way that's a lot more demanding on my time and my attention than ever before. And maybe this is a natural sort of thing that happens to you as you get older, where you start to look at how much time is left and how you're using your time because you realize it's the only resource you don't really have any control over. And I can't help but wonder if I'm truly getting as much value out of, you know, being a slave to my smart device at all times. And I felt like the value has been diminished lately. And the biggest thing that I did, which sort of brought this to the forefront for me, was on my honeymoon. We went hiking in New Zealand and I had taken three weeks off, which I don't think I've taken three weeks off since summer camp uh, when I was a kid. But being really remote, not, you know, having my iPhone in my pocket, but it being totally useless, you know, really showed me how attached I was to it all the time. And I felt really good when I wasn't attached to it. And it allowed me time to sort of reflect on the impact that it's had on me. And so when I came back from New Zealand, I bought a dumb phone and have been using it pretty consistently since as an alternative to the smartphone. And what that's done to me is it's forced me now to be more intentional with my time whenever I'm in front of my computer, because I know that I have to get my emails out before I get up from my chair and you know, go wherever it is I'm off to. And obviously email is a huge part of you know running a business and communicating with others. And we feel like we're always tethered to it. And half my, you know, I feel like I'm sort of part secretary, part CEO, and it's just a lot of overhead. So by severing the tie to my 
smartphone and no longer being able to participate in every communication channel at all times throughout the day, regardless of my location, has been really, really nice, actually. It forces me to use my time better, and I feel less distracted also when I'm out. Like, I realize that, you know, my smartphone feels like a crutch a lot of times. Like, I'm on the subway, I don't know anybody, you look around, you're like, what do you do? Nothing, okay, whip out your smartphone, boom, I'm on Twitter, or I'm on Reddit, or I'm doing things that, like, when I woke up that morning, I never thought, I would be doing. And that started to bother me. So I, I cut the cord, if you will. And it's a great way to just help you realize, you know, even if you don't stick with it, but it's a great way to help you realize how invasive your phone is in your life and how much I have felt like I've become more and more of a slave to my phone, to my apps, to the notifications. I feel like my phone is constantly trying to direct me and tell me what to do in one way, shape, or form. And like, I thought I was the owner of the smartphone, but it feels like it's the other way around. And I'm less and less comfortable with that. Yeah, definitely. That Man, that's convicting, to be honest. I feel like <laughs> I, like the, I like the idea of ditching the smartphone, but I'm also... It's a very terrifying idea yeah. at the same time. <laughs> but when you talk about your dumb phone, I'm picturing a Motorola Razor. Same. What is it actually? Yeah, I heard the new Razors coming out, but they don't have those anymore. And so I actually, the device I like the most, I kind of bought them all because they're really cheap and they all suck for the most part. So the one that I've ended up sticking with is the Punkt phone. That's by a Swiss company, P-U-N-K-T and got their MPO2 phone, which is nice. It's really, really simple. It's got buttons on it. So if I text you, I use T9. It does have some predictive nature in there. So it's like a little bit better than T9, but still a bit of a pain. And enough so that like, if I need to send you a response that's more than just a couple of words, you're probably going to get a phone call from me. And that's what the phone was really designed to do. It is to prompt you to seek out that connection more, that high fidelity phone call connection, as opposed to trying to run our lives over text, which is deeply impersonal and really doesn't convey half as much meaning as you get from just hearing somebody's voice. Yeah, I feel like every millennial just shuddered when you said phone call. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like you could actually be pretty fast with T9. Like in class in high school, I was a fiend on that. <laughs> That's almost a reason in and of itself for me to go back to a flip phone. <laughs> wow. Cool. Okay, Ben, we just have two final questions here. This is one of the questions that we ask all of our guests on the podcast. And you kind of mentioned one brand already, but any brands or individuals that you think are making waves online right now, and it could be in the retail space or otherwise. Yeah. I mean, I am uh, blown away by the guys over at Kith. They're the lifestyle brand out of New York. I can't believe what tremendous retailers they are, both online and in-store. It's such a great example, I think, of a company that's come to the market with a lot of creativity and really invests a lot in all of their sales channels to focus on the customer experience. And as a result, I am just blown away by their results and the attention that they've commanded in the market. And I think that's going to be a really big company pretty soon. Yeah, that's one of my favorites too, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I love following Ronnie and everything that they're doing there for sure. It's my a good God. one. What a great model. Collaborating with other people, really crafting wonderful in-store experiences, whipping everybody into a frenzy for online drops. And that's a great example of how a company spends zero dollars on marketing and is more known than folks that spend most of their budgets on it. So it's an example to me of somebody that has gone another way and, you know, uh, the market's responding. They love them. Yeah, absolutely. I think just a cool example before we move on here that I had noticed from Ronnie's Instagram was he was talking about their LA flagship store and how he ended up opening it up in the basement of a building because that's all that he could afford. But he also felt like 
it could actually be a really cool experience. But everyone looked at him like he was crazy because it obviously had no windows and they initially just intended it to be an inventory room. But now it's like one of the most popular stores in LA, more so because of how much effort and insight they put into experience and training their staff and drawing people in aside from just putting products on shelves. So really speaks to what you've been talking about all this time. A hundred percent. I agree. I've been to that store down there and Fred Siegel's got, I think, the top floor with the beautiful windows and it's crickets in there compared to when you get downstairs into that basement. So what a good example. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Yeah. So this is kind of just an opportunity for final comments, but tell us what you're currently working on. And we also want to know where listeners can connect with you. Uh, yeah. So I've been, you know, through my smartphone purge, I've also been starting to restrict my use of social media as well for some reasons that, you know, maybe we can probably have a whole other podcast about. But I am still available on uh, LinkedIn and on Twitter. You know, definitely reach out to me through the agency site, hellodiffagency.com. And you know, cool stuff we're working on. Well, I see a lot. We've been graduating and working with bigger customers. And I think harmonizing the back end operations with whatever's happening on the front end is really a challenge and one we're really well positioned to help out. So we've been doing a lot of work with companies to, you know, get them small order management systems put in place that they're using to help, you know, curate the in-store experience and connect that with what's happening online and going kind of layers deeper than just the site itself these days to really turn on efficiencies for these bigger stores. So that's kind of some of the stuff I'm really, really excited about. Also on the front end, I mean, just seeing the evolution of technology, how sites are getting faster, the introduction of AR and the potential that that brings is really, really cool. And I'm looking forward to turning out some work this year that starts to take advantage of it. So yeah, you know, it's really just... It's making things more efficient and getting more access to more of the back end and connecting the customer journey online and offline and continuing to figure out how we're going to turn out the best front ends that blow you away on any device you may be shopping on. So it's uh, trying to keep up. <laughs> yeah, that's what it feels like constantly is just trying to keep up these days. Definitely. But that's exciting. Man, thanks so much for your insight. I feel like there could have been a number of additional pathways we could have taken with this. And mm -hmm. maybe even for that reason, we'll just have to have you back again. But we really appreciate what you brought to the table here. I think our listeners are going to love it. And yeah, just thanks for your time. Hey, thanks to you guys, Mitzi and Mike. It was great to connect and, you know, wish you guys the best of luck with the agency and the podcast. I think it's going to be a great contribution and I look forward to being a listener also. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Amazing. Thanks so much. It's our pleasure. This episode of Wave Social Podcast is powered by Arcade Studios. Show notes for this episode and other episodes can be found at wavesocialpodcast.com. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you've got questions, comments, or suggestions for future shows, hit us up at Wave Social on Instagram. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>